Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings and welcome to the New Books in Media and Communication podcast. I'm your host, John Sullivan from Muhlenberg College here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Media and Communication, along with my colleague, Dr. Jeff Pooley. On today's podcast, we look back to the history of movements for social justice in the late 20th century and their connection to communication technologies. To talk about these issues and about his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome Todd Wolfson to the podcast. Todd is Assistant Professor of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers University. Although he teaches in a Department of Journalism and Media Studies, Todd is actually an anthropologist by training. He earned his PhD in Anthropology and Social and Cultural Foundations of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. Todd's research features a kind of fascinating mixture of traditional and cyber-based ethnography. The book that we're going to talk about today is called Digital Rebellion, The Birth of the Cyber Left, which was published in 2014 by the University of Illinois Press. Digital Rebellion examines the impact of new media and communication technologies on the spatial, strategic, and organizational fabric of social movements. Todd approaches this topic both as a scholar and actually as an activist. He's a co-founder of the Media Mobilizing Project based in Philadelphia. The aim of the Media Mobilizing Project is to utilize new media and communications to build a movement of poor and working people united across color lines. Todd has actually been nationally recognized for his work as well. In 2014, he was the recipient of the inaugural Scholar Activist Award from the Critical Cultural Studies Division of the National Communications Association. He's on the line with me now from Philadelphia. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, I want to start out getting into the book by kind of asking you about the genesis of your book. Uh, Obviously, you have some experience as an activist. And where did your scholarly interest in media and social movements uh, come about? And did it kind of grow out of your experience of being a media activist? It's actually interesting. I I started graduate school. um, I lived in Africa for a, a series of years after undergraduate um, and I started graduate school with a goal of studying development um, and understanding the knowledge practices around development. But while I was in graduate school, much to the chagrin of my advisors, um, I, I decided it didn't make sense. I didn't know how to be a white U.S. born scholar studying Africa and development. And so I went into a tizzy. And in that process, you know, I'd been taking a lot of classes on social movements and social change. I had helped found um, a graduate employee union local at, at University of Pennsylvania. And I decided I really wanted to study social movements in the U.S. And at the time, this is like early 2000, 2003, 2004, um, 
the most exciting movements were the global social justice movement, and I was attracted in particular to the indie media movement. So um, it, it came out of some mistakes or some fumbles in graduate school that led me to want to study what I thought was the most pressing set of questions around how social change happens. That's great. That's great. So uh, I want to ask you a little bit about just even the title of your book. So the title of your book is Digital Rebellion, but the subtitle is called The Birth of the Cyber Left. Do you want to tell a little bit about that? What is the cyber left? And is this just another term to describe, let's say, the new left? Um, So the cyber left is a a term I use to pull together the fragments and strategies of contemporary activism and and push them into like a coherent logic. I I think if we look at the way activists and social movement institutions operate today, we see that there is a clear difference in how they operate in the strategy and the vision and the goals. Then if you look at, for instance, the new left from like the early 60s through mid 70s, that there are some overlapping questions and issues, but there is massive transition in the way in the logic. And, And so I use this term to kind of get at what the differences are. And I think that they emerge in relationship to two important things, which are both the rise of all these new information and communication technologies, but also the transformation in the way capitalism operates from, say, the early, the late 60s, early 70s through to today. There's been a transformation in capitalism, which I think has driven technological transformation and has also changed some of the way activists operate. So basically, I'll say one other thing on this is is the, the term I use is cyber left, but the core question I think the cyber left brings to the table is what I call logic of horizontality. They operate through this sort of logic, which tries to flatten all structures, uh, or all structures, all strategy, all democratic processes. Um, and the real goal is to get rid of hierarchy of all types, which certainly is different from previous periods of movement building in terms of the logic that drives it. Right, and there's obviously a, a ton of scholarship out there about some of the ways in which new media technologies in the age of the internet have kind of radically transformed the ability of individuals and groups to mobilize in different sorts of ways. And a lot of it is actually, uh, and you talk about this, is is pretty utopian-focused, right? It's pretty uh, flattering about the ways in which the internet has kind of transformed the way social movements can organize and develop. So what was what was your entree into this? Did you share that, at least initially, that kind of concept? I did. I, I started the research, and, and in anthropological terms, I, I certainly people would say I went native, so to speak. Like I, like all the activists, I was amazed at how quickly indie media grew and how like the, the democratizing potential, or what it seemed like was the immense democratizing potential, the growth, the way activists in Hong Kong and Philadelphia could talk and build strategy together was intoxicating to me. Um, and so, I, you know, in the early stages of my research, I was, I, I mean, I'm an ethnographer by trade, so I was a participant observer. So I was taking part in all these things as a, as a matter of course. But I would say that I was also deeply, deeply imbibing the spirit of it, at least in the early phases. I think as I stepped back in, in some of the later phases of my research, I became much more critical of some of this um, for a host of reasons. And I guess in the book, what I try to do is look at um, this dialectic uh, between 
what is really strong about this, then what are the and, and, and what are some of the real problems and how do they meet together in a synthesis that might create some new formations? Um, but that's still an open question. One of the things I really like about the book is that it's punctuated with these very clear, almost clarifying moments in history throughout the even well, 80s, 90s, and in around uh, the early 2000s. These kind of moments that happen that are earth-shattering for either social movements or for media reform movements or for history in general, let's say like the war in Iraq or something like that. So you kind of, your book opens up with this, what I, I think is this really evocative imagery and you write really beautifully um, and about watching this video, uh, which inadvertently becomes the, the death of documentarian Brad Will kind of uh, unfolding uh, on, on a video. Can you tell me a little bit about who Brad Will was and why his death was such an important moment for uh, yeah. social movements? I, sh I sure can. I mean, Brad um, was a real leader in the Indian media movement, and he captures, in a lot of ways, the ethos of the movement, in my mind. So he was he's white. He was brought up in the suburbs of Chicago. He's college-educated. Um, he has a lot of cultural capital. Um, but he dedicated his life to social change in a very deep and meaningful way. And he used his video camera as his conduit uh, to tell stories mostly across the, the our hemisphere. So he did a lot of work in South America and a lot of work also in the U.S., looking at all sorts of things, whether it was communities in Brazil being kicked off their land or also gentrification that happened in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And and so Brad was a leader in the movement. Um, his videography was critical to the sort of work that indie media believed was the best kind of work possible. And he went down to Oaxaca during the um, rebellion in 2006, in the summer and fall of 2006, which was first between the teachers and the state government and then emerged as a people's kind of crisis and people's uprising. And they launched the APPO, the assembly, the popular assembly of people's organizations. I have that wrong, excuse me. But the APPO and... And Brad filmed this, and he filmed much of the struggle down there in Oaxaca City. And during the filming, um, uh, the, a bunch of paramilitary radio stations started broadcasting this phrase, if you see a gringo with a camera, kill him. And like two or three days after that started being broadcast during a, a standoff at barricades outside Oaxaca City, Brad was shot and killed, and he was shot and killed with his camera filming it all tragically and it's it's a very powerful when i first came across the video a day or two after brad had died and it went online that quickly um it blew me away and i had met brad but i didn't know him well um but what was really like crystallizing a couple things were crystallizing in that moment one was why of all the people that they could target did they target brad they didn't say they didn't go after the political leaders. They didn't go after the um, people with guns. They went after Brad. And that question really shook me. So there was that. And then the second thing that, that was really interesting to me was the way the indie media activists responded to his death. Um, they were able to create protests and raise money and create memorials and, and move this information from the indie media network into mainstream news, at least mainstream left news, like 
uh, organs like Democracy Now! really quickly. And that was amazing to me. And so it, these two questions kind of came up for me. One, and they, and they merged so well. One, why was Brad the target? And two, how did these indie media activists use the death of Brad to really move issues forward and into public consciousness? And so it was a very important moment for indie media, I think. And, and Brad did capture that in a lot of ways. I think when, one of the great things about the book is oftentimes, as I kind of mentioned before, when you see a lot of the scholarship about uh, social movements in the Internet era, a lot of it is dehistoricized in a way, uh, as, as if to suggest that these social movements have come about because of the Internet, uh, rather than having been perhaps you know, differently enabled thanks to the internet. So one of the things that I think is fascinating about uh, your book, and indeed the first half of the book is just called Origins, uh, right, where you look at the origins of indie media. And in that part of the book, you kind of make this really great argument that, that indie media didn't just magically spring forth in 1999, that there were some really important uh, precursors to that that led to indie media. Can you say a little bit about what those precursors were and why they were important to, to indie media in, in Seattle? Yeah, um, I, I see. I mean, there were so many precursors. Actually, when I was doing my research and deciding how to write it up, there was far too many precursors for me to 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 mark or at least go into depth and detail on. And, and but what I tried to do is look at some of the most critical ones. And, and obviously, I, I argue that the most critical uh, precursor for indie media, but also for the whole global justice movement is the Zapatistas. And this isn't necessarily a new story, but it's an important one to make sure that we mark. Um, the Zapatistas arose in 1994 on January 1st, the day the North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect. They said the North American Free Trade Agreement would be a death knell to the way of life of Mayan peasants or farmers in southern Mexico. Um, and Zapatistas were, were based out of Chiapas, um, which is the southernmost state of Mexico. And they sort of emerged. They had been organizing for a decade prior to emerging, but they sort they emerged at the moment, at the same moment that the internet was going public. And so they had this sort of traditional military conflict with the Mexican state. Their goal was to take over the Mexican state, to call the poor and working class into a struggle with the Mexican state. That didn't work. They actually failed on that ground, and they were forced into a defensive posture with the Mexican military, which really outnumbered them. And in that moment, there were there had been a bunch of Internet-based networks that had emerged, both to challenge NAFTA and to challenge, um, to, to bring up questions of global free trade, etc. And they and their supporters tapped these networks and used them in very new and interesting ways. And, and the Zapatistas also had a spokesperson who was sort of magnetic, uh, commandant, subcomandante Marcos. And so he would also speak and he would write poetry and it was sort of romantic. But the point being that they used the Internet in ways that forced a peace accord with the Mexican military. People heard the call of the Zapatistas. They saw the struggle. They swarmed into Mexico City. They swarmed into the capital of Chiapas. And they swarmed to, into consulates in Washington, D.C. and forced the Mexican state to, to stop their attack. And basically with that, they got a peace accord and won some basic rights and became a cause celeb. And they probably wouldn't have become a cause celeb two decades ago without the internet. 
Um, it might have just been a quick military skirmish with a small insurgency, and they would have been wiped out, and that was that. But in this case, with the use of the Internet and other media uh, platforms, they, they became a cause celeb. And then flash, flash forward two years, they recognize their cachet, and they make a call to build this network of communications that links struggles across the world fighting against neoliberalism. So that, the Zapatistas in, in and of themselves are a critical point. All the Indian media founders were deeply influenced by the Zapatistas, only by the way they use the internet, but their their belief in dignity, in the kind of um, deep democracy that comes out of Mayan communities, the network or formation that they used to organize the communities that they built. Um, so that, to me, is one of the most critical um, origin points for indie media. And you, there would be no indie media. There'd probably be no social forum without the Zapatistas. Um, the other points that I look at in the book and are all of these activist experiments that took place throughout the 90s where activists were looking both at the Zapatistas but also at all this new technology and saying, how can we use this to our advantage? And so the ones I detail in the book are are something called Burn, which was a project that, that grew out of university UCSD. Um, and also, and that was a bunch of students that created a web server that served all of these revolutionary movements, including FARC in Colombia. Um, then a second thing that um, I look at is something called Counter Media, which was like a democracy, journalism-based democracy project that uh, was based in Chicago during the D Democratic National Convention in 96. And they created some of the practices that was the basis for Indie Media. And then third, the Z Media Institute based in Cape Cod, um, where many of the Indie Media activists learned some of their strategies around what we could call prefigurative media-based politics. So th there's so many others that I could have marked, but those are the main ones I focus on. That's great. So maybe we can get into that and then sort of begin to talk, have you talk a little bit about why you focus on... So those are obviously precursors to what you identify as sort of the main event, which is indie media, right? So yeah. indie media is in one sense in line, perhaps, shares goals with these other precursor uh, types of efforts. But in giving it a lot of page space and, and really kind of focusing on indie media, you really make this claim that indie media was in some ways very, very different, perhaps uh, even more successful in the way it, it got rolled out and the way it developed. What was what was special or different about indie media uh, that would, you know, that could kind of give it its its importance on its own? Yeah, so indie media, I mean, indie media emerged, many of the activists who founded Indie Media were looking at all these experiments, whether it was the Zapatistas or Counter Media or Burn or many other things. And they were looking at all this technology and they were, were uh, they were thinking, we have to take advantage of this. And so they waited for the right opportunity. And the right opportunity was when the World Trade Organization uh, decided that they were going to have the third ministerial meetings in Seattle 
in November of 99, and the announcement came out early in that, the year of 1999. And so you see two things happening on parallel tracks. One, there's amazing organizing to challenge the WTO movements, and that's through labor, um, through anarchist communities, environmental communities, and it's really powerful, really inspiring organizing that happens across the year of 1999 to prepare for the WTOs. Alongside that, a bunch of media activists who had either come out of these experiences I detail in previous chapters or were looking at them as inspiration decided if we're going to have this as one of the most critical protests in the last for the U.S. um, in a long time, we need to create an independent media center that tells our own stories because we know Fox News and CNN will not tell our story. And so if this is going to be a huge uh, moment of social justice in the U.S., we're going to create our, a new independent media center to detail it. And so they went, went about organizing themselves for probably about six months prior. They, they um, had a conference in Austin, Texas, where they really focused on building this independent media center. The organizers based themselves in Seattle, but they also built national networks of support. And basically their plan was to create a newspaper a radio station, or at least a, a low-power FM radio station for the week, um, a video project, but then also a new website. And the website was sort of the backbone of it. And it was it was amazing. Um, the Seattle uh, protests against the WTO, what became later known as the Battle of Seattle, was a moment when the Seattle effectively lost control of the city. The, they had, the police had to call uh, curfew um, and martial law. Uh, the WTO was shut down. President Clinton, who completely supported free trade, was forced to walk back his support of free trade because of the protests. And alongside all this amazing protests and actually probably creating this huge platform for, for, for it was the indie media website and all of the media they created. They gave out 400 press passes that week. 400 activists independent journalists, concerned citizens went out and documented these protests. Indie media got 1.5 million original hits outpacing CNN and it was a brand new website. And, and you know, one thing that marks the sort of struggle between social media and journalism emerged there. So one of the founders, Jeff Perlstein, told me this story. He said that um, they, the press passes they gave out were these bright green press passes. And he would... Um, he told me that a New York Times journalist knew how to find stories by looking for a glut of folks with bright green press passes. And when he saw a glut of folks with bright green press passes, he knew that's a place where there's going to be something important. I'm going to follow it. And the reason was people were socially networked, right? And they were also much more closer to the, the global social justice movement. And so he followed and learned from these social media, social networked folks. Um, so it was a really amazing week what Seattle happened. They, they, they had newspapers on seven days, a daily newspaper. They had a radio station the entire week that was broadcasting continuously. They created five 30-minute uh, documentaries, and they also had this website, which just exploded. And one last thing I'll say about it was the goal of the website was to create an open platform. So this sort of democratic vision of media started right there. And so what they meant by that was that they wanted an instantaneous, um, if I uh, write up a report, I see it, it on the website instantaneously on an open newswire down the right uh, side, right column. And if that is a really 
important report and a lot of people are reading it, it then becomes a feature. And what was important about that was it prefigures all of the social media and uh, that we see today, Facebook, blogging, YouTube, Twitter, those visions and practices, I would argue, were first discovered and played with in a public way in Seattle through Indie Media. And in fact, one of the programmers in Indie Media became later one of the initial programmers for Twitter. So there's actually real, actual direct relations. So it was a really exciting and important moment. That's fascinating. So this moment kind of then explodes and maybe demonstrates to a great extent the democratic potential of the internet and other forms of media to carry all kinds of things, you know, text, video, um, audio, all these kinds of great stuff. So what happens then in, in the aftermath of Seattle, right? How does indie media develop into a kind of global force? And then why does it decline, right? In the end of the book, you say, you know, in 2012, as you're finishing up this project, um, some of the last vestiges of the indie media network are slowly going dark. So what what happens in that 10-year period, this, this bright spot in 1999, by 2012, why is indie media a shadow of its former self? Right. I mean, it's classic story. So I'll start with how it exploded. Um, so Seattle happens, but it's really only one independent media center in Seattle. And it's activists that are connected to Seattle. That's what they have. But there is also this global justice or global social justice movement that's emerging. And Seattle's a really important moment for it. And so after Seattle, there's all this energy. And the activists and organizers involved target the World Bank and IMF meetings in D.C. some three or four months away in early 2000. And as they're organizing for that, a series of activists say we're going to create an independent media center. And so they organize for the World Bank and they also organize an independent media center and it establishes itself. And then maybe three or four months later, there's the Republican National Convention in Philadelphia, which is also one of the reasons I look, started looking at indie media. But there's a Republican National Convention in Philadelphia and the same thing happens. A bunch of organizers organize the independent media center to work alongside the protests. And then two months later in Los Angeles, for the Democratic National Convention and the same thing. And it follows a protest circuit for the first couple months or even years where then it moves across the pond. There's something in Genoa and then they create an independent media center. And it happens like this for a year, maybe. But then it hits sort of like a tipping point and it just went it goes beyond the global social justice circuit and it explodes. And and the, the thing and one of the reasons it develops so quickly is because it's. It allow, there's a self-organizing aspect to it. If you want to create an independent media center, as long as you follow six or seven basic rules that the new working independent media center team creates, and it's very easy rules, you can create one. And so people, st and all you really need is a website. You could have a newspaper or a radio station, but those are more expensive and more laborious. So if you just have a website, that's fine. Um, and so it explodes. And I, I'd say... Between like 2002 and 2004, at the height of its growth, there's a new independent media center developing once every seven days. So it's just crazy growth. And by 2006, there's something like 200 independent media centers operating on every continent, creating news in 30 languages in every medium. And there's probably 50,000 
thousand, a hundred thousand indie media activists engaged in this, and they were doing it on a budget of something like a hundred grand a year. So it was pretty amazing. And by my research, and, and I'm sure this could be challenged, but everything I can tell, in its height, it was the largest non-corporate, non-state sponsored media network in the world at its height, um, done on a shoestring budget. And so it grew from one independent media center to a real network, which was the vision the Zapatistas had put out some, you know, 10 years earlier. Um, but, and this goes to some of the problems I would argue with the contemporary logic of social movements, um, self-organizing, not well organizationally structured movements that are overly reliant on the internet and technology, they may grow really well, but they also have the capacity to collapse just as quickly because they don't build the sort of fortitude-based infrastructure that allows them to hold out when people don't agree, to stay together when things aren't going your way or you don't get a grant. There's not the sort of infrastructure that held it together. And so many of the 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 kind of necessities of building long-term institution, the indie media activists issued. And I would say that was one of the critical reasons. I wouldn't say it was the only one. I'd also say that corporate um, media, uh, media corporations figured out some of the same tools and offered them to people in much easier ways. And that attracted a lot of people. So what indie media pioneered then became what Twitter and Facebook were in some ways, not entirely. And so that also drew some of the energy. Um, and, and I'd say another reason why it collapsed was there was a technological utopianism within the activists. And so they didn't build a really strong community radio station as a radio station that's rooted in the community it's a part of. And a really strong independent media center was an independent media center that was rooted in the fabric of the community. If there was a struggle that grew out of that community, people who were involved in the independent media center were part of that struggle. And so it reflected and became a national natural platform for that struggle. And what happened with indie media is it became farther and farther distanced from the local and from local concerns because technology became so important that people didn't do the bread and butter organizing work that is necessary for any local community platform. And so then it became three or four activists with shrill politics not connected to communities using the website as a platform as opposed to something that was of, for, and with the local community it was a part of. So I think those are some of the reasons it collapsed, and it collapsed very quickly, um, yeah. unfortunately. Right. And so I think there's you make another great point. I mean, all of this is, you know, you are you know, talking about some of the virtues of new media technologies for creating the kind of infrastructure almost immediately, at least in the Seattle case, almost immediately uh, to be concurrent with events. But it's almost like those new technologies then are kind of a double-edged sword in that they also don't allow these groups to create the kinds of infrastructures and they privilege a certain type of person who's interested in those technologies, right? So I think one of the great moments in your book is when you kind of are being really frank about who's getting involved in these and who has the time to get involved in these uh, efforts uh, once they start to privilege the technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's with all uh, movements. If you techno if you prioritize technology, you're going to need to make space for people who can really take leadership with that technology, and folks who can take leadership around you know programming 
or creating or, or any number of things um, or going to long unpaid meetings for that matter are people with more social and cultural capital. That's what I found. And so it's not entirely true across the board, but generally, at least in the U.S., the folks who took leadership in Indian media tended to be white college educated and more often than not men not entirely there's plenty of women involved but more often than not men and it, it, that in and of itself isn't a problem I, I would argue it's not a good thing you want diversity in your movements but but the other thing it leads to is that the vision comes out of folks from a certain social location vis-a-vis the social structure and so the kind of movement they want to build the 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 natural, what they think are the natural kind of agreed upon points are not necessarily natural or agreed upon. They come out of a person's social location. So I think some of the tendencies around horizontality, around democracy over justice, around openness over bringing in those folks who are most marginalized and disenfranchised, whether it's people of color or poor and working people, I think those sets of questions, they become glossed over because the leadership of indie media tended to be white, middle class and male. Um, and so what you had was a movement that wasn't of a mass of U.S. based humanity that needs social change. You had some of them, but you weren't driven by that. And, and so indie media became further and further distanced. And I would argue indie media is one of many movements that's plagued by that. I think Occupy also has some similar problems and or had some similar problems in that while we are all the 99% folks who could camp out at Zuccotti uh, Park or at um, the, in Philadelphia at uh, Dilworth Plaza and could be there at 5 p.m. on a Tuesday night to make decisions aren't working mothers generally, not absolutely. And so it led to a certain – favoring certain people. Um, and so this is, a, I find, a big problem with contemporary activism and a good big problem with the logic of horizontality that drives it. Right. You have that great quote, I forget from who, but you said when social movements move from the de- deprived to the discontented, right? Yeah, that, that comes from, I mean, it has a long history that starts with Henri Lefebvre, but then most recently Peter Marcuse, the son of Herbert Marcuse, uses it. And I think that's what we actually see is this, the deprived and discontented for them, the deprived are people who are materially um, materially oppressed by capitalism, and the discontented are those who are um, emotionally uh, de- uh, attacked by capitalism, and, and so they can't see a fulfillment of their entire being because of capitalist logic. And, and these are two different uh, claims against capitalism, uh, at, at least according to Marcuse, and who drives movements from these groups determines how those movements organize themselves. And so I think what we see in these movements is that it's largely the discontented, people who can't see a full realization of their being and their individuality, not the folks who are having trouble putting food on the table that are driving these movements. So what do we learn from this? So if you are looking at one of these, if you want to be active in the global social justice movement today, what can we learn maybe from the failure of indie media to develop a kind of sustaining infrastructure and not repeat those mistakes going forward? I think there are a couple of simple lessons. I mean, to me, one is that we can't just pay lip service to things like capitalism or white or, or racism. We have to actually do work to analyze how they 
put us differently in this world so that we can create strategies for building a movement that connects to poor and working people, to people of color, to women. And that means that that demands analysis. It demands uh, work that doesn't let us just react to the world, but actually builds a strategy around the world. Um, a second thing to me is that we need to embed technology is beautiful and it can offer so much to social change based movements, but it needs to be embedded in communities struggling for social change. It can't exist outside them. And so we need to reimagine the way technology can empower people as opposed to um, starting with what technology can do in and of itself. Um, So I, I think some of the technological determinism and utopianism has to be challenged. A third thing to me is we have to push through the anti-institution building bias in our movements. If we're going to challenge racism or capitalism, which are very strong, powerful kind of logics, we need to build institutions that can build the kind of power that can actually challenge them. And that means a long-term struggle. And so I think we need to start to imagine institutions that, that both valorize all of us through deep democratic processes, but also build long-term structures with structures of leadership and accountability and hierarchy that make sense. And, and then this brings me to the last thing, which is I think the leaderless meme is somewhat problematic. I don't want a leaderless movement, and I don't think it makes sense, and we're instead having leaderless movements. I think we need to flip the script and say we need many leaders. And through imagining that we need many leaders, we need to create programs to, to develop ourselves as leaders. It, we, you don't wake up to um, – the society doesn't, allow, doesn't create an education system where all of us can wake up tomorrow and be able to take leadership in these movements. We're, we're suffering. We, we, we are, public education isn't very good. And so we need to create systems where we can all be leaders, and that means deep leadership development programs as opposed to saying we're all leaders and leaving it at that. That's a great overview and summation. I'm curious about whether or not you think since when indie media started in, in the late 90s, as you just talked about, that a lot of these tools, they were basically building from the ground up for their own uses. Do you see a problem now that so many of these tools that were pioneered by indie media in the late 90s are now themselves under the control of multi-billion dollar corporations like Twitter and Facebook. And while they provide a platform for the kind of networking that you're describing, those corporations are obviously in business for a reason, right? They're there to make a profit. I certainly do. And it's a really great point. And I think it's one of the things that indie media actually was trying to figure out. They were very careful. They would have their own web servers and, you know, they would not keep logs on their website so the FBI or any any other kind of institution couldn't seize the server, find out who said what, and then arrest them. They were very careful and thoughtful about this because they wanted to support real anonymity. We don't have that anymore in, in our use of these other corporatized networks. And I think there needs to, like everything, there needs to be a balance. I think there were some problems with how Indie Media did it. They spent so much time and energy building web servers that they weren't able to do organizing. And that was a problem. And so now we just use Facebook and Twitter. We don't have to build our own web server. It gives us more energy, ener- time and energy to do the organizing we might need to do. But there needs to be some sort of balance because as we've seen with, with the security state from all of the revelations over the last few years, that 
we're, everyone's being watched and we do need some thinking about our own security and our own privacy in our movements in particular, because they are watched by the state. And uh, so I, I think there is, it needs to be a balance and we swung indie media might've been too far in one camp and we may have swung very much too far in another camp right now. And we need to find a balance. And this could be one, I mean, I've been reading a lot, of course, the, a lot of the new global social justice movement has been kind of taking a page also from the free and open source movement as a way to kind of get technology away from its perhaps capitalist entrapments and move it more towards community-based materials that anyone can have control over. Um, that seems to be an area where there's some, some agreement between those two camps. Yeah, and it makes sense. And and so that's a great uh, place of agreement um, and is a kind of place I could see us uh, trying to think through as we move forward with our movements. Great. This has been a great conversation, Todd. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're looking to for your next project in, in the future? How do you how do you as a scholar, where are you going from here? Yeah, um, I am in the midst of research that's looking really closely at Philadelphia and it's looking at it's in the early stages. So I'm still developing, but it's it's trying to do like a 21st century look at um, the city um, and, and the city through the lens of how the technology is transforming Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia is really focusing on creating, making itself to be a technology hub, and that has important ramifications on it. And it's also really focused on supporting um, independent workers and independent workspaces in Philadelphia. And so I really want to look at that and understand um, how the city is transforming with technology, how these independent workspaces are transforming. And, and then what that means for uh, income distribution. So how technology is affecting the city as a whole. Um, it's still a bit half-baked, so, so excuse me. But I'm in the early stages of research. So That's great. That's terrific. Uh, well, Todd, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, talking with you about your new book. Thank you so, so much, John. I really love talking to you. Uh, this has been uh, New Books in Media and Communication. We are, we've been talking to Todd Wolfson about his new book called Digital Rebellion, The Birth of the Cyber Left. It's published with University of Illinois Press, and it's got a pub date of 2014. I'm your host, John Sullivan, from Muhlenberg College here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening into the podcast, and keep to, tuned to the New Books Network for great new book interviews with authors coming your way soon. So on behalf of my colleague, Dr. Jeff Cooley, let me say so long for now.